You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we are children who are frail and we have no ability in ourselves to understand or receive your word. The natural man does not receive or understand the things of the Spirit. And so before we begin, we call out to you for the illuminating work of your Spirit. We thank you that we have the Spirit of God in us and that the Spirit of God understands the things of God and that because of your revelation to us and your illumination to our hearts, we are able to understand this revelation that you have given to all men. And so we ask for your ministry here amongst us this morning, that as we look at your word, that you would speak to our hearts through it. It is here that we hear the voice of God in this written word. We have a more sure word, and we thank you for it, and we submit ourselves to it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in America today, it doesn't cost us very much to be Christians. There's probably nobody sitting here today that has ever lost a house or a car or a job or a family or a spouse or a child simply because you have named the name of Christ and been baptized. Likely, at least I hope, not within our lifetime will that ever happen in this country, although it might someday. And even while we sit here openly and freely enjoying the the ministry of the word and singing praises to God, our brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we will spend all of eternity overseas right now, this very hour, are running for their lives and they are literally being dispossessed of all of their possessions and their occupations and their family and their wives and their children. And please don't think for a moment that I'm overstating the case. That's, that's not it at all. I'm not overstating it. That is, in fact, what is happening even right now while we speak. It doesn't cost us anything here to be Christians. And in other countries, in other cultures, in other times, in other contexts, it literally costs everything. It was that way in the early church. When they were baptized, they knew that by being baptized, I am signing my own death certificate. To be baptized was to identify yourself with a group of people who were willing to give up and lose everything, if need be, simply to bear testimony to Jesus Christ. Now I ask you this morning, and we've been considering for the last several weeks, is it is Christ worth that? Is Christ worth suffering the loss of all things? Would you be willing to give up everything you own and everything you have and even your very life, if need be, in order to gain Christ? It seems easy for us to answer that here, or maybe it's difficult for us to answer that here because we don't understand what it really would mean for us or we have a hard time putting ourselves in a context where being a Christian would cost us everything because we've never had to face that decision, have we? To, to us, being a bold Christian is, being a radical Christian is being bold enough to put a fish sticker on your car or to wear a, a Christian t-shirt in public or to put God bless you on the answering machine. That we think is radical Christianity. Those are those radical, right-wing, really serious Christians, the ones that are willing to go that far. Is being, is having Jesus Christ worth suffering the loss of all other things? Let me give you a, a study in contrast. Two men on opposite sides of a coin. 
The first we find in Matthew chapter 19. We don't know his name. All we know from Matthew is that he came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Keep all the commandments. Honor your father and mother, don't steal, don't commit adultery, all of these. And the man in a very self-righteous fashion says to Jesus, I have kept all of the commandments from my youth. See, he thought he had them nailed. All ten of them, he thought. I can go down through it and I'm blameless. I've got them all kept. And Jesus said to him something very curious. He said to the man, go sell all of your possessions. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me and then you'll have eternal life. Now, is Jesus giving a gospel of selling your possessions? Sell your possessions and then you can go to heaven? Is that what Jesus was saying? That's not what he was saying. You know what Jesus was doing? Jesus was cutting right to the heart of this self-righteous man who thought he had kept all of the commandments. And Jesus was revealing to him that he had violated the first two commandments, that his God was his money. And Jesus was going right to the heart of that. And the man looked at Christ, and the man looked at his possessions, and he turned away, and Matthew said he walked away grieving because he was a man who owned many possessions. He had all of the world's goods, he was a very wealthy man, and he came to Jesus and he said, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus knew his heart, and Jesus knew, and he could see in his heart, that the man was an idolater. His money and all of his possessions were his idol. That was his God. Even though self-righteously he thought, I've never bowed down to an, a graven image and I've kept God first in all of my things. So Jesus cuts right to the heart of the issue. Sell everything you got. Now see, Jesus, that I can't do. That I can't do. I, I, I've kept all the commandments and the man walked away. And Jesus didn't run after him and say, hold on, whoa, 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 whoa. Just say the simple prayer. Just say the simple prayer. We'll get you into the gates. Jesus didn't do that. He left this quote-unquote seeker walk away because the man was not willing to forsake his idolatry. And he looked at Christ and he looked at his possessions and he, de he deliberately thought in his mind and came to a conclusion that I would rather have all my possessions now than to have Christ for all of eternity. That was the decision that he made. Now the second man, we find him in Philippians chapter 3. We know his name. His name is Paul. He too had possessions. I think Paul, I think Saul of Tarsus was a wealthy man. He was an influential man. I think he had probably not as many possessions as the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, but he was a man of, of means. He was a man who had the world by the tail. And like the rich young ruler, he was a self-righteous man. Thought he had kept all the commandments down to the last letter. He was willing to say from his perspective that he had, in relationship to the law, been blameless. I've kept them all from my youth. But then he has an encounter with Jesus where all of a sudden he sees that he is righteous and Saul has no righteousness. He has no righteousness which God demands. And so Saul of Tarsus, later the Apostle Paul, looked at Christ, looked at his own righteousness and all of his own possessions, and he made a conscious, deliberate decision that it would be better to have Christ than to have all of these things. The rich young ruler decided, I would rather not have Christ and have all my things. Saul said, I would rather have Christ than have all my things. And Saul was willing to count everything that he had, all of his own righteousness, all of his possessions, as dung, as excrement. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, just in case you think I'm overstating the case. He was willing to count it all as rubbish in order that he might have Christ. So the rich young ruler walked away sad because he wanted his things here and no Christ. He lost Christ in order to gain things. Saul was willing to lose things in order to gain Christ. And so now we're back to our question. Is that a good trade? Is that a good trade? 
Let me, let me put it to you this way. What would you be willing to trade for that divine righteousness that you've been given by faith? You can't trade it. You can't barter it. You can't give it away. We looked at that last week. But I ask you this. If you could, just humor me for a second, hypothetically speaking, if you could trade your righteousness, that divine righteousness that comes from Christ, that alien righteousness that is His, that clothes you in the sight of God so that you stand, even today, in His presence, justified, righteous, innocent in the court of God, would you trade that righteousness for a new house if I were to offer it to you? I give you a brand new house. Just sacrifice that righteousness so that you'll stand before God, a guilty, condemned sinner in the ratty clothes of your own self-righteousness. Would you trade it for that? Now let me sweeten the pot a little bit. How about a new house and a new car? Still no? You wouldn't be willing to trade all of the glory of heaven and the presence of Christ and fellowship with the people of God and the satisfaction of every sanctified desire for all of eternity in a new heavens and a new earth for 40 years in a new house and a new car? Would you be willing to trade that? You wouldn't? Let me change the equation just a little bit and ask it to you this way. Would you be willing to give up everything you have now to gain that righteousness? Now if you say, I don't know. Then I ask you this, what's the difference of the equation? If you, if you wouldn't trade that righteousness for more of what you already have, why would you trade it for the little that you already have? Why would you do that? In the equation, losing all things and counting them of rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, is Christ worth the trade? Now, if in your mind you think heaven is a sort of disembodied state where you're floating around and it's all white and it's all light and Jesus is on a throne and you're being really quiet because you've got to be reverential and so you're just sort of hovering around in spiritual robes and every once in a while you pause to sing over and over again those songs that you really don't enjoy singing here. If that's your idea of what heaven is, then not only do you have a warped and twisted view of heaven, it's completely unrealistic, then you might be willing to say, yeah, I'd be willing to trade that for a new house and a new car here. Because you're asking me, am I willing to trade what I have now for that which I've never seen and probably and can't feel and can't hear right now? It would almost seem like a good trade. But once you realize what we've been given in Christ, then all of a sudden everything else sort of, the things of this earth grow palely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Once you are able to grasp what you have been given in Christ, all of a sudden everything else just melts away. One of the things that we've been given is a righteousness. And that's what we're looking at in Philippians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. We have been given a righteousness. It is pure, it is perfect, it is holy, it is complete, it is permanent, it is everything that we need to stand in the presence of God. We've been declared innocent. We have been cleared before our judgment day and our day in court has even arrived. We have not acquired that righteousness through anything that we have done, but on the basis of faith, we have been clothed in a righteousness that is not ours. It's not of our making, it's not of our creation. Now don't think for a moment that the righteousness that you have been given is something that you're going to enjoy. Listen. It's something that is yours right now. It's not something that will be yours someday. It's not a righteousness that's going to be given to you when you die. It is a righteousness that is your very possession right now in the court of God. Your docket says innocent, acquitted, righteousness, not guilty. It's yours and you enjoy it and you possess it right now. 
But what else do we enjoy and possess right here on earth together that makes Christ worth sacrificing everything else? That's where we get into Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. There's a very... Is that just me? There is a very logical structure to Philippians chapter 3, verses 9, 10, and 11. Verse 9 has to do with our justification. That is to be declared righteous in the sight of God. Verse 10 has to do with our sanctification. That is being made righteous in our day-to-day walk and holy living. And verse 11 has to do with our glorification. So with your Bibles open, I want you to look at verses 9 or verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 has to do with our sanctification. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Verse 11 has to do with His, with our glorification. When we gain Christ, we not only gain justification in verse 9 and sanctification in verse 10, we gain glorification in verse 11 in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So we're going to divide verses 10 and 11. We are going to get through both verses today. You'd be thankful to hear that. We're going to get through both verses today. We're going to look at what gaining Christ means to our sanctification and then what gaining Christ means to our glorification. So verse 10 is our sanctification. This has to do with the here and now. When I have Christ, what does it mean to the here and now? That's what verse 10 is all about. The Apostle Paul starts off, that I may know him. And then you notice the rest of verse 10 has some phrases that maybe you're familiar with the wording of them because you've heard me read them or say them so many times that you're almost nauseous of listening to my voice say the same thing. They're familiar verses, but maybe the meaning doesn't quite strike you right away. That phrase, for instance, that I may know the power of his resurrection. What does that mean? Does that, does that mean here and now? Are we supposed to in some way experience the resurrection of Jesus Christ or re-resurrect him or have him resurrected? And what? Is that just for Paul? Is that for the apostles? Is that for the early church? Or is that for us? What is the power of His resurrection? What does that mean for me today? Look at the phrase, the fellowship of His sufferings. In what way do I fellowship or share in Christ's sufferings? That doesn't even sound like something I want to do, does it? Is this fulfilled by the people who now crucify themselves every so often in the Roman Catholic Church as part of the sort of living out the crucifixion of Christ? Is that what it is? The fellowship of His sufferings? Is this something I should even want to have? Is it something I can have, or is that just for the apostles? And what does it mean to be conformed to His death? What does it mean to be conformed to the death of Christ? Does that happen when I die? Does that happen right now? Did it already happen? What do those phrases mean? I'm telling you something. All of those phrases, listen, all of those phrases pertain to something that is happening to you right now while you're sitting here and you don't even know it. So let's look at them. The first phrase, very straightforward, easy to get our our minds around, that I may know Him. That I may gnosko. The word know is gnosko. And it refers to an experiential, intimate knowledge of someone or something. That I may know Him. And Paul, when he says that I may know Christ, is not talking about a merely intellectual facts. The word gnosko was used to refer to something that you knew by experience. It's an experiential knowledge. I know Christ because I experience Christ in some way. And if you've never experienced Christ, then you can't know Him in this sense. To know Him in this sense is to know Him experientially. And as this understanding of it being an experience, it sort of helps us understand all the rest of the phrases in this, in this verse. That I may know Christ. Now if you, if you're observant, you'll notice if you remember back from verse 8, this is not the first time that the Apostle Paul has talked about knowing Christ. 
Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Savior. Now, did Paul know intellectual facts about Jesus? Did he know intellectual facts about Jesus? Yes, and lots of them. You couldn't have asked for anybody who would have known more just intellectual, straightforward facts about Jesus. But that's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul's talking about is an intimate, experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is the goal toward which the Apostle Paul oriented his whole life. I think if you could get into the subconscious mind of Paul, you would find that in every situation, in every opportunity, in everything he did, he was seeking to know Christ more fully. To more know Christ more intimately. To be more familiar with Him than he had ever been before. Because Paul was not satisfied with mere intellectual knowledge, certain facts about Jesus. He wanted to experience Christ. That's not something you have to wait until you're dead to do. That is something that is the lot, and really it should be the expectation of every believer here and now. Today, tomorrow at work, the next day, all the way through to next Sunday, to experience Christ in a real way every day. How do we do that? Well, that's what the next three phrases are all about. We experience Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's ever possible in this life to know Christ as fully as you possibly can? As fully as He can be known? No. Do you understand He's an infinite person? Do you understand that this man who is the God-man is infinite God in human flesh? You could not in this whole lifetime, no matter how long you live, you cannot come to know Him as fully as is possible. Furthermore, there will never be a time in eternity, I don't believe, when you will ever know Christ fully. You will always, for all of eternity, continue to grow in your appreciation of His grace, of His wisdom, of His power, of His majesty, His beauty, His loving kindness, His goodness, His majesty, His holiness. All of eternity you will grow in your understanding of that. I don't think there will ever come a time after one and a half, two and a half, three and a half billion years in eternity that we say, you know what, I think I've got this Jesus guy pegged. I just don't think there's anything else about Him or His grace or His mercy that I need to know. I've got Him nailed down. The novelty is gone. I've got Him pegged. There'll never be a time when that happens. He is infinite. And you understand that knowing Christ is a synonym for being saved? If you don't know Christ, it means you're not saved. If you're not saved, then you don't know Christ. Only those who are saved can know Christ. Jesus said to know Jesus Christ is to have eternal life. Eternal life is a knowledge of Him. That's why we refer to our salvation in terms of knowing Christ. I came to know Christ. We say this. I came to know Christ when I was X number of years old. Or I came to know Christ four years ago. Or I came to know Christ, and in knowing Christ, this is what I have done. We speak of our salvation in terms of knowing Him. Because at the moment of being born again, we embark on a journey that will take us through for all of eternity. Of getting to know Him. And the taste that we get of that here is just a glimpse of what heaven will be like. When we will see... Vista after vista after vista of His unfolding manifest holiness and majesty and grace and kindness and goodness before our eyes and in our lives and in our minds for all of eternity. From one level to another. From glory to glory after glory for all of eternity. Isn't that a marvelous thought? And there'll never come a point where we say, 
I got him. Nothing else to learn about Jesus. I'm good. Now I can set to clean in my mansion because I've got him nailed down. Now I'm going to figure out Dave Rich, and then I'm going to figure out Jim Osmond, and then I'm going to fi- those are easy tasks. But I've got Jesus nailed down. That was task number one. You'll never get to that point. Never for all of eternity. Paul says, "I want to know Jesus Christ." How does that happen? Well, two things. The next two phrases. Look at them. To know the power of His resurrection. What is the power of His resurrection? Do you know that the most impressive demonstration of the power of God was not at the parting of the Red Sea? It was not in the creation of the world. It was not in providing manna. It was not in uh, parting the Jordan River. It was not in um, providing rain. It was not in any miracle that Elijah, Elisha, or Moses did. It wasn't in the miracles that the apostles did. You know what the most magnificent demonstration of the power of God is as far as the biblical writers are concerned? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1. He is declared to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. Ephesians chapter 1 says that uh, we, we know the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of His strength and His might which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. You want to see the power of God on display? It's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, there is a power of God which was displayed in the resurrection that is available that you and I can know. How do you and I know that power of God which was displayed in the resurrection? I think that what the Apostle Paul is talking about here is the power of God, the the resurrection power of God which is manifested in our lives when we walk in newness of life. It's Romans chapter 6 is what we're talking about in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. It's Romans chapter 6. The death that He died, He died to sin once for all. And the life that He lives, He lives to God. Therefore, you reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. When you and I manifest a newness of life and we walk in holiness, we are displaying, we are tapping into, and we are experiencing the power of His resurrection. That power which raised Christ from the dead is the same power that is alive in every true Christian and it is available to every true Christian to walk in newness of life. They say, what do I feel when that happens? Do I have a tingle that runs down my spine? Do my, my feet start to fall asleep? Do my eyes flicker? Is there light that comes out of the ends of my fingertips? What does that power look like and feel like? You don't need to feel anything to manifest that power. Listen, I know how much of a wretch I was before I got saved. And I know all of the sin, or at least a portion of the sin that was in my heart. It's having that revealed to me day by day. I know a portion of the sin that was in my heart and how wretched I am. And let me tell you something. It is a manifest demonstration of the resurrection power of God every time Jim Osmond can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. You know how much power it takes to do that? You know how much divine intervention and divine grace it takes for me to say no to sin and yes to righteousness? And to do that every day? And every time I do that, whether I feel tingles running down my spine or see light coming out of my fingertips or not, that is a manifest demonstration of the resurrection power of God. What else can take a dirty, rotten, wretched, horrible, miserable, dead-in-his-sin sinner and give him a love for righteousness and the ability to do righteousness and to please God? Nothing but the resurrection power of God. So when Paul says, I want to know Him, how am I going to know Him? I'm going to know Him by knowing the power of His resurrection. What he is talking about is, I'm going to know Christ 
through my day-to-day walk with Him, as I continually say no to sin, yes to righteousness, and I walk in newness of life, I know the power of His resurrection. And what about the fellowship of His sufferings? What is that? Is that something we're supposed to partake in? Well, it's something that we can partake in. What is the fellowship of His sufferings? The word fellowship is the word koinonia. We've looked at it before. It was a business term that was sort of used by the early church to describe a a participation in, a sharing in something. When two businessmen went in on a business venture and they both pooled their resources, they both sacrificed to make it happen and they started a venture, they would say that they had koinonia. They had fellowship or mutual participation in something. Scripture says we have fellowship in the Word of God. We have fellowship in the Spirit of God. We mutually participate one with another in our salvation over the Word of God. We are fellowshipping here together today because we are all mutually sharing in the Word of God as I teach it and as we sing it as a congregation and as we hear it read. We're all participating in this. So in what ways do I participate in the sufferings of Christ? Am I supposed to seek to be martyred or crucified? Am I supposed to seek to be exiled? Am I supposed to seek death? Is that how I participate in the sufferings of Christ? No, the sufferings of Christ are the sufferings of His body. And the body of Christ is called to suffer. We all suffer. Some of us from physical ailments. Some of the body in other parts of the world suffer persecution. We all suffer shame. We all participate in those sufferings through which, Paul says, We suffer, and it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. We shouldn't be surprised when affliction overtakes us, knowing, Paul says, that we are destined for this. This is what Christ has called us to. So when His body suffers, when you suffer, when the church suffers, when persecuted believers suffer, that is the sufferings of Christ, because the sufferings of His body are Christ's sufferings. Do you remember what Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? Me. What was Jesus saying? You're causing suffering to my people. That's my suffering. You think you're just persecuting a renegade band of of heretics. You're persecuting me, Saul. When we suffer, when the church suffers, Christ suffers. This is His bride. We are His body. When my bride, when my wife suffers, I suffer. When she endures pain, I feel that. I enter into that. I participate in it. I'm concerned with it. It is much more so with Christ and His church. So what are the sufferings in which we participate? Was Paul suffering? Everything in the book of Acts has already passed for Paul. He's been four years in prison. Was he suffering when he wrote this? He was. But what he is talking about is the sufferings of his body that he gets to share in. How do we share and how do we grow in the sufferings of Christ? Friends, do you understand, if you read books like Tortured for Christ or any books of the saints, read a biography of of Spurgeon or read a biography of of John Bunyan. I always want to say Paul Bunyan. It's a different guy. (laughs) Read a biography of John Bunyan and you will find that the saints throughout history, when they are persecuted and when they suffer for the faith, Without exception, universally, they will testify that there is a fellowship amongst saints who suffer. There is a deepness to fellowship and there is a deepness in our fellowship with Christ in the midst of suffering that is not there at other times. It's not there at other times. Christ meets with His people on a level and in a way in the midst of suffering that He does not meet with you every morning over cornflakes. It's something unique. 
It's something different. It's something you won't experience unless you suffer. But when you suffer, that fellowship is available. And in the midst of knowing the power of His resurrection, in the midst of enjoying fellowship with Christ and with His people, in suffering, we are continually, look at the next phrase, being conformed to His death. What does it mean to be conformed to the death of Christ? Conformed is a word summorphos, which means to grant or to give the same shape or form to. We are being conformed or we are being shaped to the death of Christ. Now, is that something that as Christians we want? I'm telling you something right now. If you're a believer in Christ, you are being right now conformed to His death. This is not something that's just for the saints. Some people say, well, this is just Paul talking about his impending martyrdom. He's about to be sacrificed. He's about to be martyred for the faith. He's just describing his own coming death. No, he's not. He's not describing either the sufferings that he has endured. What Paul is describing is a process. It's present tense. It's a process with a goal. And the goal is being conformed to the death of Christ. And what the Apostle Paul is talking about is not his sufferings and not his martyrdom. He is talking about his identification with Jesus Christ. You, as a believer, are in Christ. And no blessing that has ever come to you from God has ever come to you outside of what Jesus Christ did. And no spiritual blessing that you have ever been given has ever been given to you apart from Christ. Everything you have, you have in Christ. Your predestining, your election, your adoption, the forgiveness of sins, the redemption, the sealing of the Spirit, all of that comes to you in Christ Jesus. You are so intimately, so inseparably united to Christ in His death, that the Apostle Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. When Jesus died on a cross, I died on that cross. That was my death. He suffered in my place and I am in Him so that God sees His death as my death. Not only that, He sees His resurrection as my resurrection and His burial as my burial. Because I've been given His righteousness. Everything that is Christ's is mine. Because I'm in Him. And what the Apostle Paul is describing here is just as you are positionally in Jesus Christ, His death was your death, you are in the process of sanctification being conformed to His death. Just as He died to sin once and for all, so God is taking you positionally, what you are, your position in Christ, and He is, over the course of time, sanctifying you through the fellowship of His sufferings, the power of His resurrection, all of that to conform you to the image of His Son. God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what being conformed to the death of Christ is. Just as you are inseparably united in His death, so God is forming in you Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. That is the blessing that you get in Christ. You don't get that outside of Christ. So is it worth losing all in order to gain Christ? Well, in Him, what do I get? I get the free and full and forever justification from all of my sins. And the Father then begins a process by which, through the fellowship of His sufferings, through the power of His resurrection, on a day-to-day process, moment by moment, I am being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, and He is conforming me to His death. That's our sanctification. Now, there's another one. Not only our justification, our sanctification, verse 11 is how our gaining Christ affects or guarantees our glorification. In order that I might 
attain to the resurrection from the dead. Kind of an interesting phrase. If you have, there's something about that, in, and we translate it into English, it doesn't quite come out right, and it almost sounds like Paul's doubting it there, doesn't he? If you have the King James or the New King James, then it reads, if by any means I might attend unto the resurrection of the dead, as if Paul's kind of doubting it. The NIV says, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And it almost suggests, I mean, I could read those words with a, a nuance in my voice as if the Apostle Paul's sort of scratching his head and saying, I don't know if I'm going to make it or not to the resurrection. If somehow I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Was Paul uncertain? 1 Corinthians 15, you can read Colossians chapter 3. There's absolutely no uncertainty in Paul's mind at all that he will enjoy this resurrection that's being spoken of. And the resurrection being spoken of is not the resurrected living. It is the resurrection at the end of the age. The Apostle Paul speaks of it, Acts 24:15, the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. But the Apostle Paul is not doubting his share in the resurrection. What he is saying is he does not know how this is going to happen. He doesn't know how it, not that he doesn't know the form it'll take, not that he doesn't know the timing of the resurrection itself, but for Paul, his share in the resurrection was certain, but what he didn't know was this. Am I going to be transformed here and caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, as described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Or will I come out of the dust of the ground and be caught up to meet the Lord in the air? When He comes, will He come back and transform me in the twinkling of an eye so that this perishable will put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on immortality? Or will I be resurrected with the rest of the church from the dust of the ground, be given a resurrected body, and then go to be with the Lord? That he didn't know. The resurrection was certain, but the intervening events, he it wasn't didn't have that nailed down. He didn't know whether the Lord is going to come back in his lifetime or not. So Paul says, if somehow, in some way, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, I'm not going to go into the doctrine of the resurrection, because if you notice down in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, in a few months, we are going to get to chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power, resurrection, that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So we're going to cover the doctrine of the resurrection. We're going to flesh that out, pun intended, when we get to the end of chapter 3. But for now, I just want you to notice two very interesting things, significant things about the mention of it in verse 11. The first is that it is a phrase, and maybe your translation or your footnote has this, it is a phrase which is parallel nowhere else in the New Testament. The normal word for resurrection is anastasis, anastasis. But Paul does something with that word here that he doesn't do anywhere else that he speaks of resurrection. He puts the preposition ek at the beginning of it, ek meaning out of or from. So literally it reads, if somehow I may attain to the out-resurrection. And then he repeats ek again when he says, from the dead or out of the dead. If I may attain to the out-resurrection, out of the dead. And he repeats it. It's sort of a a double redundancy, if that's possible. A a single redundancy. He repeats himself and he uses that preposition ek. Why does he do that? He doesn't use that anywhere else that he speaks of resurrection. Not even in 1 Corinthians 15. What's Paul intending to do? He wants you and I to understand that the resurrection that he's talking about in verse 11 is not some spiritual state of living that he's addressed in verse 10. This is not resurrected living. You hear people use that term. Resurrected living as if there's a higher life 
that some Christians get to attain to, some Gnostic level where we have arrived or achieved. That's not what Paul is describing. He uses the term ek to emphasize the physical nature of this. We will be resurrected out of, out of the dead. There will be dead, and when we get our bodies, we will come out from amongst the dead physically and receive our resurrection bodies. He is asserting the physical, real, literal nature of a resurrection that he's going to describe in verses 21 and 20 and 21. But for now, he's just mentioning it and he wants us to know, I'm not talking about something that happens here. There is something that we get later on in glory and it is the resurrection of our body. It's the first thing I want you to notice about the, that mention. Second, I want you to notice the chain that exists. And this is just backing up to take in verses 9, 10, 11 again. I want you to notice the chain that exists. Beginning in verse 9, you and I are declared righteous in the sight of God. We are made righteous positionally. In verse 10, we are being made righteous practically. And in verse 11, we will be made completely righteous in eternity when we are with Him. The righteousness that we get positionally, we begin to live out practically, and we are finally and fully realize it when we are raised out of from amongst the dead at the resurrection. It's the same thing that's in Romans chapter 8, and you're familiar with those verses. We know that all things work together for good, for those who love God and for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what Paul's speaking of in Romans 8. It's the same process that he's speaking of here in Philippians chapter 3. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also, what? Glorified. Isn't that wild that your glorification is spoken of in the past tense? I've been glorified. How can that be? Because I've been justified. And if I have been declared righteous in the sight of God, friends, my glorification is absolutely certain beyond a doubt. He will not take somebody who has been declared righteous and punish them in hell and not see it through to final and full glorification. You whom He has predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son He has called you, He has justified you, and He has glorified you. It is a signed, sealed, delivered, final thing in the plan of God. It is just a matter of time until you and I get to experience that. Is it worth it? Suffer the loss of all things for that? Would you be willing to trade it all for that? Just like that right now? Friends, your glorification is certain. That's Philippians 3, verses 9, 10, and 11. You've been justified, you are being sanctified, and you will, in your experience, be glorified. In God's eyes, your glorification is already a done deal. Let's pray and praise Him. Father, we thank You for Your marvelous Word. We thank You for Your marvelous plan of salvation by which You have redeem the people for Yourself. And we pray, Lord, that You would deliver us from every evil deed and that we would, through the process of being obedient and walking with You, know the power of Christ's resurrection, that we might enjoy the fellowship of His sufferings 
as you conform us to his death. We thank you that we will attain to the resurrection from the dead and that we will be called out and that we will meet the Lord in the air. Thank you for your glory. Thank you for your promise. And thank you for your son who died to make all of that possible and give us his righteousness. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.